Hello, and welcome to the Park Baptist Church Podcast. Our goal is to preach the Word of God in a real and authentic way, so you are filled with the Spirit to guide you through life each and every week. To learn more about Park Baptist Church, visit parkbaptist.com. I uh, am thankful that David asked me to come in here and and fill in for him to be gone. I love our pastor. He deserves to take a Sunday off to get a break, even if it's he's still serving others while he's away uh, at Camp Bethel. Um, I think he, they pulled in late last night, didn't they? Something like that. 5.30, woo, early this morning. But he deserves to uh, have, have some time off, so I'm thankful to fill in for him. It is something that uh, I take very seriously because I want to honor the Lord as we break bread together, as we open his word together. But at the same time, I don't want to do too well and then move up his list and get asked all the time. So, <laughs> My uh, message this morning is from Colossians 3. I've titled it Spiritual Fullness. I love uh, two verses in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5 that are mirrors of each other. Uh, not surprisingly, they're written by the same man, Paul the, uh, the Apostle, but they speak as a former worship pastor for 27 years. They speak very much to me and to what I was uh, doing for that, for that amount of time. In Colossians, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians is very much like it. But before we get to that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been so full that you couldn't eat another bite? Dessert looks good, but it's going to have to wait an hour till I make some room, right? Have you ever been there? Maybe it was a Christmas dinner or a delicious Thanksgiving meal or one of our Park Baptist potlucks that are so good, but you filled up and you couldn't eat another bite. That's one definition of the word filled. It's not, however, how Paul is using the word filled. In Ephesians 5.18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But be filled with the Spirit. A different use of the word filled. We can better understand this word filled as controlled, motivated. Consider I wouldn't suggest this would be you, but consider someone who has become so angry they lost control of their temper. They're filled with anger and lose control. Filled means to be in control in this instance. Consider someone who is so hungry, so filled with hunger, they would eat scraps out of the garbage. 
We grimace at such a thought because that's not normal behavior. But if someone is so filled with hunger, they've lost control of what we would consider normal behavior. Hunger is controlling them. For the person filled with rage, anger is controlling them. That's the way that Paul is using the word filled. Not filled with anger, not filled with hunger, but filled with the Spirit. In this meaning for filled, in Ephesians 5, it's also in Colossians 3. In contrast here in Ephesians, he says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Controlled as filled, we see and understand that the drunk has given him or herself over to the drink. When they do, they're not themselves anymore. But alcohol has crippled their ability to have self-control, and now the flesh has taken control. We, in contrast, are instructed by Paul to give ourselves to God. How do we do that? Well, we're going to have to back up in Colossians to understand. And that's where we're going to start. To have a better understanding of what this spiritual fullness, to be filled with the Spirit, is all about. I'm going to just read the whole chapter of Colossians. Um, I like to read long passages of, of Scripture. I think if we limit ourselves to a verse or two, we miss what's before and what's after and how it all imply, uh, impacts each other. So I'm just going to read the whole chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Colossians 3, put on the new self. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And Paul goes on showing that this doesn't take place in among the body of Christ, but at home as well. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. So Paul goes through all of this and says, when this fullness of spirit, this word dwelling in you comes, you're going to sing, you're going to encourage one another, you're going to submit to one another. This doesn't just take place among the body of Christ. This is how you act at home. This is how you act at the workplace. This is how you, whatever you do and wherever you go, this is what has become true of you. We know that, uh, and we're taught that the Spirit comes on us at salvation. Warren Wiersbe has said this, when a person is saved, he is immediately baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ and identified with the head, Jesus Christ. This identification means that whatever happened to Christ also happened to us. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose again, we arose with him, and we left the grave clothes of the old life behind. We died with Christ. We live in Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are hidden in Christ. We are glorified in Christ. Apart from Christ? No, nothing. Nada, as they say. Leading up to this, Paul is making a a change in his letter. He just finished criticizing self-made religion, asceticism. Asceticism is a word, a big fancy word that basically describes what a religion would show hurting themselves, harming themselves, making that their offering to God as if somehow our pain would please him. Or that maybe the pain would help put away evil desires. Paul says they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I love how the New Testament translation, the New Living Translation says it. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Lurking. Because that's what those desires are doing. They're lurking. Hiding in the shadows, just waiting to take back control. Paul says, 
put them to death. It's very strong language. Paul's very serious about this. Let me share a parable with you to describe what I think Paul is, the point Paul is making. A certain man wanted to sell his house in Haiti for $2,000. Another man wanted to buy it. But because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house at half the price with one stipulation. He, the owner, would retain ownership of just one small nail protruding from just above the door. Got the picture? After several years, the original owner wanted to buy the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, and hung it from the single nail that he still owned. Soon the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. The moral of the parable is, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. So, how do we pull that nail? How do we put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness? Well, we starve it out. We drown it out. We have to get into the dirty work of this life. I wish that I could just speak positively. I told Melanie what I was uh, sharing my message on, and then she went and read chapter three of Colossians, and she said, don't do it. Don't do it. I wish I could speak in the positive and just leave the negative till when David gets back. But we as believers, we have to deal with this. If we want to get to the point where we're ready to worship and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we have to deal with this stuff. I have to be honest, I don't always feel like singing. Sometimes my life isn't in the right place where I'm ready to come before God and praise Him. But I have to submit and say, yes, I will, like we sang this morning. I'm not always in the mood to be thankful. I'm not always ready to submit myself to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's what Paul calls us to. Imagine a physician has only one course of action when the patient has a burst appendix. He has one course of action. He's got to go in and remove it. He's got to go in and do surgery and take the appendix out. A gardener who doesn't remove the weeds puts his entire harvest at risk. And we have to deal with these earthly desires in us. Paul goes on. Get rid of anger. He talks about taking off. He, the, the description is taking off these clothes. Taking off anger. Put it away. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We get rid of anger because 
It will control your life. It will drive people away. So we look to be controlled, filled with the Spirit. We must stop being controlled by anger. Get rid of rage. Blowing your top at another person will never accomplish anything for the kingdom. So many churches are minefields because if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, watch out. Get rid of malice. Malice is wishing bad for others, hoping for their destruction. That's malice. What good can come from wishing failure upon someone? I've been in a lot of churches and have heard of other churches that I've had connections with where leader after leader is brought down simply because someone in the church or some group in the church thought it was time for fresh blood. Are you kidding me? The only thing that needs fresh blood is this heart right here that Christ has come to transform. Josh Howerton is pastor at uh, uh, Lakeland Church in Illinois, Lake Point, Lake Point Church in Dallas, Texas. And he tweeted yesterday, and I love this. There are two different categories of people that can be confused with one another. Two categories of people. One, people who love the church, so they attack her flaws with solution-oriented energy in order to build her up. The second kind, there are people who hate the church, so they magnify her flaws and failures with failure-focused energy in order to tear her down. The first is a lot like Jesus confronting the Pharisees. The second is a lot like Satan, the slanderer of the church, who accuses her day and night. What kind of people are we? Do we have malice for the church? We want to bring her down? Or do we have a love for the church that wants to build her up? He says, get rid of slander. There are so many churches that stink of the rotting carcass of gossip because too many, it's of, too many of its members keep that nail above their door, thinking it's just a prayer request. It's not hurting anybody. It's just fellowship. We've got to put gossip to death. Get rid of it. And then get rid of filthy language. That's what he says in the New Living. That's what it says in New Living translation. And I hear a lot of Christians today asking, is it really a sin to cuss? Is it that big of a deal to use foul language? So what? The word hell is in the Bible. Why can't I use it? Well, see one through four. When you cuss, are you angry? Do you have rage? Do you call someone a name? You have malice in your heart? You're talking bad about someone, that slander? I can't think of any situation that we would consider cursing that doesn't apply to the first four. 
So that may be an evidence in your heart of something else going on. And we're going to see later when we put on these characteristics of Christ, another reason why filthy language is out of bounds. Now, this all sounds a bit harsh. Alden's filling the pulpit. This should be easy. We're taking a week off. We'll put our act, get our act together when David gets back. Piece of cake. Cut us some slack. But Paul is adamant. And we can't ignore this. He has very strong language that we are, put, we are to put to death the evil earthly desires in us. For these things cannot dwell alongside that which is supposed to fill us up. That which is supposed to guide our lives. We cannot experience spiritual fullness as long as a single nail hangs above our door that the devil can put his garbage on. So, you understand part one of your mission. What's part two? In verse 12, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who he calls the church, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see, compassionate hearts hold no anger. There's no room. It's the opposite of anger, compassion. Kindness is the opposite of rage. Kindness douses rage out like a bucket of water over a flame. Humility has no need to lift itself up by putting others down through slander and gossip. There's nothing more proud than a gossip. And meekness loves to see others succeed. It doesn't wish them destruction. Meekness celebrates their success. And patience has a soft tongue when things don't go his way right away. You see, these characteristics of Christ that we put on they cannot dwell in the same home as these former characteristics. Our, our grave clothes, you could say, our rags, they're the opposite in every way. The good news is this. This isn't something we do out of our strength. It's not something that we have to muster up by our bootstraps. The better translation here of put on and take off is Paul is saying, having taken off, because you were saved, Christ has taken off your rags and put on his robe of righteousness. So having taken off these things and having put on these things, these characteristics of Christ, for the believer, it's already taken place. And it's Christ who has done it. Paul is just saying, now act like it. He goes on with this instruction, bearing with one another. And this is a picture of submission that we have within the body of Christ. Bearing with one another. The New Testament, New Living Testament says, making allowances for each other's faults. 
Has anybody ever heard of the uh, Christian singer from the 80s? This dates me a little bit. Rich Mullins? Okay, well, not a hand, not a single hand. All right. Thank you, Bonnie. Rich Mullins wrote a song that every once in a while, just the melody of it pops into my head. It's called My Brother's Keeper. Brother's Keeper. The words go like this. Now the plumber's got a drip in his faucet. The mechanic's got a clank in his car. And the preacher's thinking thoughts that are wicked. And the lover's got a lonely heart. My friends ain't the way they wish they were, that I wish they were. They are just the way they are. And I will be my brother's keeper. Not the one who judges him. I won't despise him for his weakness. I won't regard him for his strength. I won't take away his freedom. I will help him learn to stand. And I will be my brother's keeper. Hold back your judgment. Bear with one another. That's what that means. Hold back your judgment against your brother, against your sister, when they make a mistake. Don't rush in to admonish or criticize them and correct them. Oftentimes when we rush in, it's because we want to prove how good we are and how messed up they are. Well, that's a lie. Know this, that the same Holy Spirit that convicts you when you mess up is alive in them, convicting them. So just pray for them. Paul goes on, takes it to the next level. And if one of you does have a complaint against another, forgive anyone who offends you. Maybe you've made allowance. You've prayed for your brother. You've prayed for that sister. But they doubled down and they offended you. They've brought offense to you. Paul addresses that. He says, forgive them. So it's still... Not The door isn't open for us to come and put our garbage into their life, saying, you messed up. Forgive them. And in all things, love one another. He says, and put on love that threads it all together. It binds it together in harmony. This is a common thread of all of these things. You can't have compassionate hearts or kindness. You can't put on humility or meekness or patience, these characteristics of Christ. You can't put them on without love. So put on love. Good news. It's not your imperfect, human, broken love. That's why you have to put it on. It's Christ's love. Put on Christ's love, his perfect, unfailing love, his endless love. Put that on. Okay, so we've put it all on. We're all dressed up. Now what? Well, now we're to the part I started with. Worship. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the work of God dwell in you. Be filled with the Spirit so that you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts.
submitting to one another. That's where we're going. We have to put to death earthly desires. We have to cast off the selfish, sinful attitudes of the old self and put on these characteristics of Christ. Now, the helper who Christ sent, the Holy Spirit, now has room to work, has room to move us, has room to act in our life. What does that look like? Joyful, thankful, submissive. That is what the Spirit-filled life looks like, to be joyful and thankful and submissive. Back to Ephesians, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to, your, to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Making music, making melody in your hearts, that's joy with thankfulness, thankfulness right there. And we sing with submission, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is all a part of the same uh, package. So what's your score? Three out of three? Are you waiting for the other shoe to drop? I think sometimes we muster up the effort to be good at one of these things once in a while when we feel like it. But Paul is saying that it should always be like this. This is how it should always look in the church. Martin Luther said, let God speak directly to his people through the scriptures and let his people respond with grateful songs of praise. So when we are filled with the spirit, we are moved to sing, to sing. There are more than 400 mentions of singing in the Bible. That's a lot. And at least 50 or more are direct commands to sing. Did you know that singing was not optional? It's not. And I'm not only saying that because I'm a former worship pastor. Singing is not optional. It's a command. It's a directive. And in both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul is directing believers to sing. It's an instruction, not a suggestion. It's not just a good idea that Paul came up with one day while sitting under house arrest. Paul knew that singing was vital to the health and the life of the church. Singing is our service to God. Singing is a matter of obedience. And Paul direct us, directs us not only to sing, but also how we are to sing not begrudgingly or out of duty, but with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We sing because he, our Lord, is marvelous. That is the how. Let's not skip past what we should be singing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What are psalms? What are hymns? What are spiritual songs? Yeah, you're asking that, right? <clears throat> well, the Psalms are a little bit obvious. These are songs from the Old Testament that believers still sung. In fact, they sung in the New Testament church with brand new meaning because many of the Psalms that were messianic prophecies, now they knew that Christ filled in the blanks. So they sung those songs. The Psalms should be sung by all of us. Are you lonely? There's a psalm for that. 
Are you broken and hurting? There's a psalm for that. Do you feel far from God? There's a psalm for that. Do you feel victorious that you've just won the battle with Christ on your side? There's a psalm for that. Are you mourning over your own sin? There's a psalm for that. We should be singing psalms. Hymns? I know what you're thinking. Alden's going to talk about the worship wars. Contemporary versus traditional. No. Hymns aren't what you think they are. Not the way Paul used them. They're not a genre of music written between 1750 and 1950. A hymn is simply this. A song of praise to God. That's what a hymn is. And not everything you call a hymn is actually a hymn. Not everything that we call a hymn in our hymnal is a praise song to God, is it? There are many hymns in our hymnal that are songs about God. Well, what seems weird, we would sing directed at God, but we're talking about him in the second person. Well, what are those? Should we just tear those pages out of our hymnal? No. Those have a place. There's one left. Spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's the last one mentioned and the one mentioned right before and submit yourselves to one another. Because spiritual songs about God are to be sung to each other. So when we participate in congregational worship, singing about this God who has saved us, singing about this God is so good who has given us victory, we are encouraging one another. A psalm to each other or a song to each other is a spiritual song. And it reminds us that we have overcome because of Christ. But Alden, my voice isn't beautiful. Who said anything about singing with skill? Paul, I, I've read this chapter several times and Paul doesn't say that, John. <laughs> I see you looking at me back there, Bagley. He doesn't say that. Anything about skill. Maybe you think you don't sound good enough and your voice would distract others. It wouldn't be an encouragement. It would be a discouragement. Well, it's not about your voice. Maybe you think you sound so bad that when you sing, it makes medicine sick. You set off car alarms. You make babies cry. So what? It's not the beauty of your voice that brings encouragement. It's the beauty of the Christ you're singing about. That's what brings encouragement. That's what transforms a congregation. When we submit ourselves to do this awkward thing of singing in public, can we agree that that's weird and awkward? Where else does this happen? But we do it because we're told to. And we have seen as a body how it affects us and impacts us when we sing together. When we do that, we bring encouragement to one another. You're encouraging your fellow believers. The very thing that stirs singing within you will stir singing within those around you not because of your voice, but because of your Christ. Spiritual fullness, being filled with the Spirit, being controlled, led, 
motivated by the Holy Spirit looks like this. Joy, thankfulness, and submission. We are to submit ourselves to one another. You know, when we do that in a way of malice, it rips the church apart. When we submit to one another in a way that builds up the church, then there is nothing that can stand against it. And that takes trust, doesn't it? That's why we need to put an end to gossip, put an end to slander in the body. Because I need to share with you my struggles. And if I feel like you're going to talk about me behind my back, you're going to judge me, you're going to take my sins, my mess to somebody else, and then it's going to spread through the church like a wildfire to tear me down, then I don't really want to share with you my struggles. We need to create for one another an environment that encourages building one another up. That I can say to Bagley back there, John, man, I'm hurting. I've got this place I messed up in my life and I need your help. Can you pray for me? Can we meet together once a week for just a month and you can encourage me? We need to have a church like that. Paul is instructing a church like that. But it cannot exist if we don't put to death the earthly desires in us. It cannot exist if we leave those grave clothes of malice and slander and filthy language on. We've got to leave those in the grave so we can put on the character of Christ and we can be Christ to one another. Be his character to one another so that we can be full of joy, thankfulness, and submission. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We can have the greatest programs. We can have the greatest ministries. We can have the greatest pastor, the greatest property, the greatest plans. But if we are not filled with the Spirit, we've missed it. And we will not be the church that God has called us and made us and saved us to be. Let me end with this poem. A city full of churches, great preachers, lettered men, grand music, choirs, and organs. If these fail, what then? Good workers, eager, earnest, who labor hour by hour. But where, oh where, my brother, is God's almighty power? Refinement, education, they want the very best. Their plans and schemes are perfect. They give themselves no rest. They get the best of talent. They try their uttermost. But what they need, my brother, is God, the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, help us to do this, this hard work of pulling the weeds, of removing 
putting to death these earthly desires that are in us. Having taken off these old dirty rags of our old life and putting on this robe of Christ, of his character, help us to act like it. Father, move in our hearts and move among us that we might be filled with your spirit to be people of joy, people of thanksgiving, and people who on purpose answer to one another, to encourage and lift up one another. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.